Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. It's hosted by Mary Shirley and me, Lisa Fine. We are also a part of the Corporate Compliance Insights family, and both the Compliance Podcast Network and Corporate Compliance Insights are great spots to get cutting-edge news and for you to keep up to date. Today, I'm really excited, as this is our last guest for what we're calling the winter semester or Gwickmester, and I get the chance to speak with Amy Barnard-Bond, who is one of the luminaries in our ENC world. It's hard to know where to start when I start talking about Amy's work and her accomplishment, but here are a couple. She's a former Fortune 50 executive. She's the founder and CEO of Barnard Bond Coaching and Consulting, and she just joined Kaplan and Walker as a partner in February 2023. And that's with another GWIC, Rebecca Walker. She's also the author of the Promotability Index and Toolkit. It's an extremely useful and practical tool. And I feel like I should say how they say in the commercials, I'm not just a sponsor. I, I used it and I am a huge proponent. With that, Amy, so many of our listeners know you already, but can you talk about your background and then a little bit about joining Kaplan and Sure, thank you. I'm an, I started off as an attorney. I went to Georgetown and practiced in a law firm and then went into HR for about 11 years and then made my way into compliance and ethics. And I have bounced around between HR and compliance and ethics pretty much my whole career, gotten into writing and advocacy. Some of you have worked on the Women on Boards movement, and I just try to find the spaces where I can make a difference. So for me, compliance and ethics and HR work are all about people and systems and bringing them together to create the kind of workplaces where everyone can be enabled to do their best work in a sustainable way. And so that's really where I spend my time in trying to create those pathways. And I do think that they're all having done... It's interesting because I, I have some parallel careers with you. I, we both went to same undergraduate, same law school, and I've spent some time in HR as well. And I think it's really important that relationship when it goes well and the way people all work for the best to advocate for people can make the biggest difference in what we do in, in either of the spaces. It really can. And this opportunity to join Jeff and Rebecca, who have been longtime friends and colleagues, I've always considered Kaplan and Walker the go-to compliance law firm. I hired them for projects when I was starting out in compliance at Allianz, and they helped me with my risk assessment when I was at McKesson. And I've just always appreciated their companionship and collegial advice. So it's really a pleasure and an honor to join. So I feel like I'm come full circle in my roots in compliance law and helping companies create healthy workplaces, but I'm also integrating my experience coaching chief compliance officers and general counsels over the past several years. So I just, I feel so grateful that this has all come together so that I can do all these different amazing things that I love to do and in service to compliance professionals. So it's really wonderful. And it's almost like full scale then for somebody who needs help, whether it's the risk assessments or if there's a risk that relates to people, you've got somebody around who can also talk about those things. I think it's huge. That's uh, exciting. It's very exciting. Yeah, I'm biased, but I'm very excited for all of you. I think it's fantastic. Thank so, you. Yeah, I was keeping up right, and you talked about a lot of really interesting things. And one of the things that I had just looked at was you had a recent post about listening to understand versus listening to respond. And in your mind, is that the same as active listening? It is. And I think it's 
better to break it down than just to say active listening, because I don't think that often people think they're actively listening if they're not talking. (laughs) And it's much more than that. So what I find is, and certain personality types are more predisposed to this than others. And it's very important to Many people are, especially if you're a lawyer and you're taught to be ready with your argument, right? You're not really listening. You are listening to respond. You are not listening to increase understanding. And as a team, people need to feel valued and respected and and that their opinions count. This is how trust is built. And that's trust is really the foundation of five key factors that enable teams to get really good results and to enjoy it. So, for example, I need to, Lisa, if we're on a team... I need to trust that your intentions are good, that you don't have a personal agenda that you're trying to push on me, and that your intentions are for the good of the entire company, and that you're being and honest with me. And usually, one thing that's really interesting as well is the idea of listening, not only to what the person's actually saying, but listening for the second level message that's lying underneath the initial message. Usually, people, are, if you listen closely enough, You can listen to what they are listening for from, and that is really important. I think in our compliance roles, I would explain that as you might be telling someone about an upcoming training that needs to be done, and they're talking to you, and what you need to be listening for is what's their primary concern about this? Is there any impact? They're probably going to be listening for you to respond that you understand the pressures of their business, that you are trying to find a time that's good for them to do the training, these kinds of things. So if you can get one level deeper and in listening to someone else, understand what they are going to be listening for from you, that's when you can really have effective communication and relationship building and that trust that underlies all relationships. Yeah. And I think in a lot of cases for us, it's good in ethics and compliance to be building these relationships before you have to come back in a crisis, because sometimes actually you have to be listening for some specific things. You want to listen and get through different levels, but you you also have to be aware of the impact of it. And when it's higher stress, it's never quite as easy to listen. And with that, you talked a little bit about building and how this relates to building and leading teams. But as you were speaking, as I'm working on trying on my listening to understand, it made me think about women and oftentimes that men sometimes are more aggressive, more willing to, how do you balance the listening and the importance of listening to understand with also making sure that you are heard and speaking up? So is there any good techniques, especially for women who may not want to jump in? Women have a double bind of needing to, I'll, I'll start with all leaders need to be ideal, balance, approachability, and assertiveness. And the challenge for women is that men have a, ne- a slightly easier advantage in that they can be more assertive and lean into that, especially under stress, and they don't need to necessarily be as approachable, whereas women need to balance both or they can get a likability penalty. So they need to constantly always be managing those. And so with communications, being assertive in savvy ways is something that most women who are on corporate boards or CEOs will tell you they've had to navigate. It is pretty rare that most women would tell you they could just let it all hang out and be aggressive and say what needs to get done in a very direct manner without 
suffering some consequence to that. So there, there's a warmth that needs to be conveyed. And also how you disagree at times can be different in terms of not getting that likability penalty. Hopefully we will continue to morph so that people can just be more direct. But currently, most people would tell you, and I've experienced it myself, that is the case. So again, I think asserting yourself with warmth is important. I think that also making sure there's always talking, interrupting. Women experience, people of color experience that a lot in a lot greater frequency. And knowing how to overcome that objection, having a wing person in the room with you to talk about it. I know a lot of my colleagues pair up and have someone in the room with them. And if they're over-talked or if there's someone that's taking credit for an idea, they can say, oh, hey, Susan just said that a few minutes ago. Why don't we ask her to completely finish her thought? Or I would love, we're both talking at the same time. I can't hear what you're saying. And I really would love to share this with you. Why don't I finish? And then it's your turn. That would be a way to be assertive and also take charge. So there's some gender judo in that. And there's a way to still be warm and then give over the floor after you've had the chance to do it. So it's, I think you, you learn it's it's a lot of trial and error, Lisa. It depends on your audience. Mm -hmm. Some men are amazing allies and they will speak up for you and they will clear the table for you and make sure that you're heard. And I think men are a lot more aware of that now than they ever were before. So thank you, all you male allies out there. And women need to help each other out as well. Yeah. And, pay, and pay attention. Women, people of color, different age, English, if you're in an English speaking room. And it's Absolutely. Language, yeah. There's so much to that. And I think what I'm going to jump on from there is, do you have any practical tips that you will talk to? We're getting a little quick free coaching moment and how to best listen to understand. It always helps if you have some advanced prep time in a conversation or in an important meeting to research your audience and who you're going to be speaking with. And so I always approached important business meetings almost like an interview because you're pretty much at an executive level interviewing every day for your current job. Of course, hopefully with time, you get some trust and you build relationships, but it's never good to get complacent. And so if you can get some information ahead of time about, or you've observed the person speaking, understand what the power dynamic, do they have more power than you in the organization? How much do they care about that? Some people care a lot and they, they want you to show deference. Some people are more laid back and they want to be treated more as an equal. Those are really important things to know when you're about to communicate with someone. What are their pet peeves? How succinct do you need to be? Or are they a big sky, big idea person? Are they an introvert? Are they an extrovert? All these things are important. Are they person or does that drive them nuts and they just want the headline? So these are all things that ideally you think about or in the meeting, try to check in, I would say, and see if you're meeting their need. Again, listen for what they're listening for and how engaged they are. And I would even check in and just say, is this a level of information you want? Or would you like more detail? Or do you want me to really sum it up? If you can't tell, I would ask them. And they usually appreciate it because you're putting it on the table. They don't have to give you the feedback. Yeah. Yeah. I recently have had an incident, which turns out well, because I said, I, I kind of reported out, I said, here's where I am in the middle of a couple of things. Is this what you want to know? This is where you want me to go. And is this the priority? Because that's an opportunity for, this is not how I want to do it. This was not what I thought you were going to do. And it's not so far along the, that 
there's an opportunity to course correct if necessary. And exactly. I'm doing. And, and sometimes you can't get the time to do that. And I think that is a question of also for us, how do you best ma- maximize your opportunities to get the information you need to share and get the responses you need? I think for them, that's just been a recent experience of mine. And I try to think about more and more and I try to keep some of your words in my head. Thank you. A couple other tips I can give you. A close colleague of mine wrote the number one book in the world on listening, Dr. Mark Goulston. The book is Just Listen. It's fantastic. And he said to pay attention to how long you're speaking. And ideally, a person should speak just for about 45 seconds before allowing someone else to. And this is different. If you're giving a presentation, of course, that's different. But in a conversation where you want it to be a shared environment. Yeah, that makes sense. And what I guess the last question I have before we move on is if you are talking to someone or trying to actively or you listen for someone who really is just clearly trying to make their case and respond, and you are also trying to get a point across, I think you've talked a little bit about different ways to moderate and do that. But are there, are there times where it just makes sense to let it go and through the end? Or how do you handle something like that? I think if someone's really worked up, and again, depending on the power dynamic and how many times you've had the same conversation with them, it could be once, if it's the first time, you might want to let it go to a certain point. And then until you really are clear on what's important to them, what's driving this, that kind of thing. And hopefully they they stop long enough to let you ask those clarifying questions. And then... I'd let them know that you've heard them repeat it to say, may I check on my understanding with you? Can I take a minute? And they'll just say, yes. And you say, okay, this is what I heard you say. Repeat back the key points. And do you say, is that accurate? Does that kind of sum up fairly your position? And hopefully they'll say yes. If they say no, just say, okay, what did I miss? And you can clarify. And then you can say, okay, great. Thank you. I understand your position. This is how I would respond to that. And then you respond. And, then hopefully there's some alignment around you don't have to you can agree to disagree depending on who has the power to make the decision if you're peers that's a different situation if you have to go to someone with both points of view figure out how to do that i think what's important to know is that you do those things you're demonstrating the two things that you really need in order for others to be willing to listen to you there are two preconditions for someone to follow your lead. And that is that number one, they need to believe that you like them. You know I mean? Best friends, but like them and you think they're a good person. And then second, that they believe that you're open to their influence. Right. You need to connect with them first before they can really hear you and they can just be present with you. So once you have that foundation, you're in a much better position for them to listen to you and for them, you can move on depending on what the issue is or what the action is. It makes a lot of sense. And it, it all comes down to the idea of this is helping build your trust. And you're actually learning what someone's, if you're spending all your time trying to respond, you might not even hear what they're saying to begin you with. You don't. We actually can't. I've caught myself doing it. I'm still guilty. I still work on it. But being a, being aware of that in, in the moment, am I already thinking of what I need to say next or am I truly listening? And if you're really worried you're going to forget something, bring a little notepad and jot down like a tiny phrase that'll help you remember it so that you can go back to being present. It is very hard in a conversation when something it really means something to you and you're like, oh, I've got to get this out. But honestly, carrying a little piece of paper and a pen can then free your mind to listen. Yeah, that's really helpful. So I'm going to change gears to one other thing. And that's, um, I'm really excited that we're both going to be a part of the inaugural Women in Compliance Conference from Compliance Week. And I think 
especially I love the fact that as we're ending another semester, we're talking about being paid what you're worth as a woman. You're leading a discussion about that. And I, I just think it's something that is often top of mind and a bigger challenge for women than men to think about and talk. So I was wanted to just start by saying, do you think there's a pay gap in our field in ethics and compliance? And is that, I guess, the follow-up question, I'll give them both to you and then you can respond on all of it. Is it aligned with what we see for the workforce generally? It's a great question. Having done comp myself, and you've been in HR, there are market pay studies that are done regularly, surveys that are done by big companies under scientific conditions, basically scientifically valid conditions where you have enough of a data set to be able to compare. And I've not actually ever seen one specifically except when I was in-house and had access to those because they're very expensive. It's something that the people get paid for and they change regularly and have to be updated. It's very labor intensive. So I have not seen a validated compliance survey based on gender in a while. So starting with that, however, I can make some assumptions. Companies that, and I wrote about this in a Harvard Business Review article a couple of years ago, but it's still current, is around how to identify and fix pay inequality at your company. And so in that article, I walk through how to ensure equal pay, which is actually very simple, although it's not easy. It is a process. And companies that have done pay equity audits find that they're that they usually, and this is when they're comparing apples to apples, Lisa, so like compliance people who are literally doing this, like a compliance analyst, data analyst, or an HR business partner, or a chief compliance and ethics officer, depending on the industry, the size of the company, geography, those are all um, valid factors in paying someone differently, education level, experience level, those kinds of things. But if you really have enough data, you can get pretty close and figured out. So companies that do this find that over time, they usually need to adjust the salaries of about 5% of their workforce. And so what we find is that over time, unmitigated, without this kind of attention to compensation based on various demographics, there will be drift in salaries for about 5% of the people. And the pay adjustment usually ranges anywhere from 4 to 6% of base. And so I would say that I'm sure that is happening to compliance people across the field and in organizations, depending on how much their organization pays attention to this across-wise. The large number that we see cited usually, especially on International Women's Day and during Women's Month, around 83 cents on the dollar is a total benchmark of all women in all jobs and all men in all jobs. And so it's not as helpful to think about that gap when we're really talking about a specific field like compliance because there are jobs that have historically been underpaid that were primarily female jobs, such as teaching, administrative work, frontline healthcare versus other jobs. Now unions actually equalized wages over time very well. They're probably one of the most effective things that happened for pay equity in the last hundred years because unions have negotiated for women and men in the same, doing the same job to get the same pay. And so what we find is that the drift in the more senior executive levels is much bigger. So pay gaps at the highest levels, like executive levels for men and women tend to be much different than men and women in jobs that are more quantifiable at the middle level. Yeah. I think it's also interesting if looking at organizations, if you're seeing at that executive level or the the C-suite, 
you know, the women, as you're saying, versus men or people of color or how long people stay. I think there's just a lot there that's just fascinating to me because one of the other challenges is when you bring somebody in new, no matter what gender you are, you want to maximize that moment. So, And that can lead to a lot of drift as well. That's just, that can lead to age, ageism, which may not be intentional, but it is the impact. And that's why this drift can occur. Market pay can go up for a job. It can also actually go down for a job, although companies don't usually focus on the down as much, but uh, most people really only usually focus on the up. So let me ask a question. One of the things that we've heard a lot about quiet quitting and all of those things, I'm going to talk about the other side of it is that I think women, and really, and a lot of us, I think a lot of people at ethics and compliance, you take on other things for experience and career development. And at some point in time, that ends up becoming part of your job responsibility. And it may be work you're essentially doing for free because you tried to do it for all the right reasons. So my question for that, and then that also may come into the promotability index and toolkit is how do you make sure you're getting the right things out of those opportunities? And I put some air quotes in because sometimes it turns out to just be another job. Yeah, women do tend to take on more often what I'll call office housekeeping than men do. And it's something women need to get better at because we're the ones who can say no and who need to see it coming, like it or not. It could be the office party. It could be something huge like ESG. Right. It could, right. And everything in between. Organizing everyone to get together. And of course, during COVID, a lot of that happened. And sometimes men do it too. So I don't mean to leave them out. But in general, there is a lot of substantiated data for people who have studied this mm-hmm. that that indicate that we do get that and we do get the dead end work that is extremely time consuming and can prevent you from a promotion because yeah. you're not available to take on the cool high profile assignments and the riskier assignments so when someone when your organization asks you to take on more work which i assume is happening quite a lot right now given the layoffs and rifts in certain industries and just the big change curve that we're still navigating through, it is a risk. So you need to think about who's asking, why are they asking me? Is this permanent or temporary? To the best of my ability, how can I project that? Should I ask for a pay increase? Is this something that someone was getting paid for previously, such as if your department's shrinking, but the work has to be reallocated? And so you're still doing your job, but you're taking on more work. That's really important to know. So these are all things I would analyze and think about. And if you come to the conclusion that, yes, this is substantial enough and they're not taking other work off my desk, and you can ask to do that too. That's something you can negotiate. Maybe you're tired of doing a chunk of your job, maybe even doing it for five years and you'd prefer to do this chunk and, but you'd like to give up that chunk. You can negotiate that. Maybe that then doesn't result in a pay increase market-wise. But if you're taking it all on and it's paid work and you're still doing everything else, then yes, I think really you need to, within that window of opportunity, there's always a window of opportunity and you've got to get it when the momentum is still there, which is usually no longer than six months, but I prefer less than three months, which gives you a chance to suss up how it's impacting your current work inventory and your work life. That's when I think you need to go. And if it hasn't been already raised, raise it with your manager, boss, executive, and just say, hey, I know, happy to take this on. This is what I'm finding. I'm finding that it takes approximately X hours more. I'm not getting to this work or I can do it. I'll figure it out. I'll work longer hours and I want to be compensated for that. And ideally, maybe you've done your research, some informational interviews with people who do that work. Find out ballpark, maybe what it, I was just doing this with a client recently, you know, what more 
should get paid there. Sometimes you won't succeed. Sometimes in a new role, a company will drag their feet either because they don't have the money or they're concerned about taking on the additional money. You could ask for a bonus instead, which then doesn't tie it permanently into the compensation, especially if it is the duration is unknown. That could be a fair way to approach it, but keep it a conversation. But if ultimately at the end of the day, you're not going to get paid more. And again, I would say after six months, people don't, it's not on their radar anymore. Unless you can get promised a review at the next year, if your company's not doing well financially, that could be a reason for them to say, can we revisit it next year? And then just get a blood promise as much as you can for that. Then you need to think about, you need to think more pragmatically. You need to sit back and say, okay, I'm not going to get paid more for doing this work. And am I going to be gaining skills that are valuable and that will help me get to the next level job? And so should I reframe this in my mind as I'm not, because you can very easily then think of, I'm being taken advantage of. This isn't fair. You can go there. And then you maybe ideally shouldn't stay there because that's not going to be a great place to work if that's how you're feeling. But if you can think, okay, I'll do this for a year and do your research, talk to other people, leave a safe space, say, this will be great because in a year they're basically paying to train me. I've got a, I've got a training ground and I might not get this opportunity. The only reason they're giving this to me is because they know me. They know I'm good. They know I know the people and I can get this done. So a year from now I can say, and I started the ESG program. I got headcount. I got budget. We kicked out a vendor plan, all of that, right? If you can then a year from now, you've then got more to go to the market with. And so I would just say sometimes you won't be successful when you ask for it, but do ask for it. Ask right. for it in a thoughtful, intelligent, researched way and make it a discussion. I have a, a video short on the importance of keeping it a discussion because then you learn a lot more too. Don't make it confrontational. A lot of people think that they have to fight for what they're worth and people should fight, but fight in the right way. <laughs> Keep it a discussion. Believe in yourself. Have your data ready. Put your best foot forward. That's to me what fight means. And then if you really don't feel fairly treated, you walk as soon as you personally feel comfortable and can do that. It's always better, of course, to have a job before leaving another job, but give them a shot. And then one thing I would also say about that, Lisa, is give yourself a time limit. If you, again, make the best pitch, you get turned down or they put it on the back burner, set a time limit for yourself. Say, okay, I'll do it for six months. And then I'm going to see how I feel. Do I like it? Am I getting good experience? Am I getting greater exposure? Am I earning another sponsor in the company? Because now I have access to a different executive, all good things. And then once the six month hits, then check in with yourself. Am I done at this point? Should I go? I find that setting a time limit for anything that initially isn't something that's in your power to solve that you just need to live through can be more empowering because you have the control over how long am I going to let myself feel this way? How long am I going to experiment with this? And I think one of the things to keep in mind as well, and that is if a certain amount of time it's not changing for you and you think this isn't working for me, that could be a really good opportunity. Somebody else may really want to try to do this or grow from it. So there's also a way sometimes to, I think, to offload it in a way that you also get an opportunity to grow or mentor someone else, which is a not a bad skill to work on either. And I think there are lots of ways to try to think about it, but it's Great always point. for us. Great to be point. Ready. Yeah, you could think of it as a rotational. You could, if you didn't want it, especially too in the beginning, you could say, I'll do it. How about I do it for six months and let's consider this a rotational opportunity in our group? Something like that. That's a great idea. And I know what I would think, and my answer doesn't matter as much to this, but I think that the promotability index and toolkit helped me think about 
it made me focus a bit on my analysis for what the for this part of this topic, which is really after the am I ready for certain things? It's instead of just thinking, oh, this is a super exciting and fun project to think strategically, is this something I'm interested in? Does it benefit my career? Is it bringing something new? How much time does it take? And that's one of the ways that was my analysis that thank you for helping me with. So for others, I don't know, how would you give any points on how those two those tools can really help them figure out both their worth and whether they're ready to? Sure. For those who may not be aware, the Promotability Index is a career assessment. It's an 82-question career assessment that's free and available on my website. I created it in 2019. And my goal was to reverse engineer promotions and identify the five key elements that organizations look to when deciding whether to invest in someone or promote them. And it's objective criteria. I think that sometimes leaders aren't always good at articulating why you might not be ready. And one of the most frustrating things I ever heard, I know for myself and for my clients is, oh, you're just not ready yet. You're doing great, but just keep doing what you're doing and you know it'll happen. And so no, can you be a little more concrete? That's not actionable. To me, that's just lazy management. And so we all have a responsibility to give concrete, actionable feedback so that we can all reach our promise of being our best selves and continue to grow our whole lives, I hope. The Motability Index is designed to accompany you your whole life. There's no one that legitimately can ever get a perfect score on it, in my opinion, and including definitely myself, because it's all aspirational. And it's a choose-your-own-adventure. You take it and was coaxed into writing a guidebook to accompany it, which has over 30 exercises in the five areas. I wrote that during COVID, and that was fun. And you can decide, ideally, with a conversation with your boss, frankly, or colleagues, which of the five areas you want to work in, which are self-awareness, external awareness, strategic thinking, thought leadership, and executive presence. And in certain jobs, certain areas might be more important. You're reporting to the board. Or if you're going for your first VP level position, strategic thinking may be what you want to work in. Or maybe you've gotten some feedback that you weren't aware of how you were coming off in a certain in a certain behavior. And so you need to work on that. So it provides that level of feedback. For me, it's really all about a long game. To make a change is challenging. So you really need to be motivated to work on it. And so I wanted people at all stages of their careers, at all levels, to be able to feel the inspired shift. So the other thing about the book is you choose what you want to work on. And again, feedback from your leader or your team and companies have adopted it. And that's been fun because then they're all having, using the same language and can support each other on, oh, I want to work on executive presence. Okay, let's both work on that together and come up with some action items Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So that's how I think it helps. It's not directly related to negotiating a salary increase. Those are very specific things you do there. And hopefully some of what I said today will be helpful for people. And I have some other YouTubes and writings on that in my newsletter and in my my YouTube site too, if people are needing to do that right now. But to your point, Lisa, yeah, I'm really glad you found it helpful. I, my hope is that for issues, people could get some guidance on their issue from looking at those two resources. Yeah, that's great. So I mentioned earlier before we close off that I knew you in the field. I still remember the first time I met you at a conference. It was like, you, you said, I just met Amy in real life. And then I realized, and you said, I've got all the same background. So do you have any sort of favorite thing, memory or something about either Tufts or Georgetown? And I, asked, I wanted to ask you at Tufts, there's this tradition, which I did not do. I'd never painted the cannon, but there's a cannon that people change the paint on. And I'm sure they still do it to this day. Did you ever paint the cannon? And is there some other thing like that 
you know, when you think back on resonate. Yeah, that's funny. I was in Kaiomega, and so we had to paint the cannon for various things. There's nothing completely that stands out there. That was it was fun. When I took my daughter back for college visits, we looked at it, and I told her about it, and she just looked gave me this very strange look around. Why would you? paint a cannon. But I'd say at Georgetown Law School, again, where we both went, the domestic violence clinic that I did there was a really unforgettable experience. And then another highlight would have been working as a law clerk on an Equal Justice Foundation fellowship. As you probably remember, they Mm -hmm. were nonprofit funds were raised. I was on that group and we raised funds so that people could afford to take pretty much non-paying jobs between first and second year in law school. And I had the privilege of working for Kai Feldblum at the ACLU legislative office. And I got lucky and Kai had worked with Senator Kennedy and Senator Steny Hoyer's staff and then President George W. Bush to lobby through the ADA and so I got to work with a wide-ranging coalition of nonprofits, unions, social justice groups, medical, religious groups. It was really amazing to really see the end process of the legislative process. And, of course, what the ADA did really changed the work environment permanently for so many people. Because at some point, we all become disabled, Right. If we live long, if we live long enough, and so it was such an important law in terms of opening access for people. I just realized two things we haven't talked about, which I'm going to cut. One, I also did the domestic violence clinic. Oh, great! And it was one of my great substantive and experiences that I did. And the other thing is, I worked in protection and advocacy and disability when I was in the nonprofit world. Oh no way! That's amazing. Yeah, I did. I worked for when when I took my little break. And I went out to Park City, Utah, and I thought I was going to book ski lessons. And then I stuck around for a little while. I ended up working for a disability law center and did protection and advocacy for people with disabilities. And it's, it is a huge eye-opening area. It's also the largest minority in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. And again, we'll all be a part of it at some point if we yes. live long enough. So <laughs> yeah, should, it's important. We should be so lucky. So in any event, I, now I'm excited to talk more about those things. And thank you so much. I know how busy you are. And thank you, Amy, for taking the time with me and for supporting women in our field. And on behalf of Mary and me, it's the Great Women in Compliance podcast. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.